Welcome to Nancy's Next Chapter, a podcast where we explore the many pivots that happen in life, uh, no matter what age you are. And I am Leslie Wake Webster, and I am coming to this podcast from Los Angeles. And I am Nancy Dodson Wake, and I live in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Well, and mom, you and I were just talking before the podcast started. I'm quite amused to know that you have been left alone in charge of your 17-year-old grandson, Wake. I hope you and Wake don't get up to anything too wild. Oh, it's very dangerous when you have a grandmother this age <laughs> who is thinking back and thinking, wasn't that a great feeling to know that you have this house all to yourself? For a whole week. However, we have also very observant neighbors here. And in fact, Wake had left the garage door open yesterday before they left on Saturday. And one of the neighbors called Mike and said, I I think there's something wrong because the garage door has been open all day. So anyway... I feel like if there was anything Wake was planning to do, it would definitely be covered by at least two all-seeing neighbors <laughs> who know that Wake is there this week by himself. So, oh, that's so funny. I, I think back I, to when I was a teenager, and I I was not a uh, a teenager who was prone to getting up to mischief, as you know. I was a real goody two shoes. But <laughs> but had I had I been prone to getting up to mischief, all people could do was call your home number, and if your parents were out of town, then there was no way of contacting them. Well, that's true, and of course uh, now communication is just instant, Leslie. I remember often thinking about your trip across the United States from Texas, where you picked up your sister's car and drove to L.A. No phones. I mean, you had no phones. I know, I know. I, I think about that now, and it's so crazy. And yet, at the time, it was just, if you were going to drive across country, that's what you did. I only had paper maps. I had the triptychs from AAA. I did not have a cell phone. And when my car broke down in West Texas, I was just on the side of the road and I had no way of contacting anyone. I just started walking back toward the nearest exit, which was a couple miles away. And I was wearing Birkenstocks um, thanks to my women's studies phase. And I called AAA and uh, AAA came and basically got me and got the car and towed us to Fort Stockton, Texas, the closest closest town. The home of the road. The home, home of Paisano Pete, the Roadrunner statue. And uh, I think at that point, once I was in Fort Stockton, I called you and dad. And I just remember bursting into tears because I had literally just, I graduated from college. I'd finished my summer job and I was driving to Los Angeles to begin my life. And it just felt like such a inauspicious beginning to be stuck. But my sister Conley, who was back in Houston, put out an APB to all her friends saying, is anyone in the West Texas area? Can anyone go check on my sister? And her good friend, Wayne Howell, came to the rescue. And Wayne is the nicest, most loyal, gregarious guy who would do anything for a friend And he happened to be in West Texas because Wayne's hobby 
is herpetology and he collects snakes. And he and a buddy were out in West Texas. And so they basically drove up from Mexico where they'd been hunting snakes, uh, drove up, checked in on me and then said, hey, do you want to go hunt snakes? Wayne explained, all we do, we wait till the sun goes down because then the snakes, the, the blacktop, the asphalt will be really hot or still warm and the snakes like to bask on it. And you just drive real slowly on like roads that aren't very well traveled. Most of the way you catch a snake is you just have a little stick with a little V at the end of it. And you put that V around the snake's neck, you know, uh, below its head so that it can't get you. And then you pick it up and you drop it in a pillowcase. And so I was just driving around Texas with these snakes and pillowcases next to me. And again, I remember thinking, is this what adult life is? (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever think back and think, if I had not made that decision to go to California to explore the possibility of being a sitcom writer, think of all of the interesting people you would never have known. I know, I know. I And there were so many times in the first five years that I was in California that I thought about just giving up and turning around because there were so many scary unknowns. And I don't mean scary, like in danger of my life. I just mean like, I was like, what do I do here? I I don't know these people. I don't know this situation. I don't have any connections here. And that's intimidating. I remember you saying to me at one point in one of our conversations that one of the things that you really liked about California was that everyone you met was on their way to doing something else that they thought they wanted to be. Like a a lot of of the, particularly people I expect your age were doing like they were um, working as waitresses or waiters or um, they were taking messages or they were all doing something that wasn't why they were there. But while they were there and they, they needed a way to earn a living and you found that, I guess, comforting. There was this culture of becoming or being on a journey and an understanding that your current job or situation in life didn't mean that's where you were going to be forever. Uh, But I do remember that one thing that was really hard for me was to say the sentence, I'm a writer, because I felt like I couldn't really say that until I was a paid writer. Now they have the term imposter syndrome to, to describe when you don't feel like you are sort of worthy of your job title or your situation in life. And I can just remember struggling with that and being fearful that someone would challenge me. And one time someone did, I was in a, I don't know, I was in a bar. Swing dancing was a big thing when I had just moved to LA. The movie Swingers had come out and I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I was talking to some guy and uh, he said, what do you do? And I said, I write comedy. And he said, well, say something funny then. And I didn't have anything. I just was... I think I just walked away. (laughs) Well, Leslie, I remember one of the things that you did there was... uh, Oh, I did. I did stand-up comedy a few times. Stand-up comedy. Yeah. And had you ever done that before you went there? No, no. And that was was a terrifying and very helpful part of my journey. I didn't think that was where my strengths lay. But I also knew that a lot of people honed their skills in comedy by doing either improv or stand-up. 
And I had read this article in the LA Times about a woman named Judy Brown. And there are a couple Judy Browns. There's a very famous one. And then there's this much less famous one. It's the less famous one who I read the article about. And it was about how she had a stand-up comedy class that she did. And at the end of it, people would do a little like five-minute set at the comedy store. And I thought that seems doable. Like that, I could go take a class for eight weeks. I could develop five minutes of material and then I could actually stand up and perform. And and yeah, part of me did think, well, maybe I'm going to discover I'm a great stand-up comic, which I did not discover that. But it was great. She, um, Judy had this anthology of books. It was called Joke Soup. It was, you know, like 2,000 jokes from stand-up comics from the last 40 years. Right. And she'd like flip through, pick any joke, and then we're going to dissect it. We're going to talk about what makes it work. What's the setup? What's the payoff? What's the mechanic at work in the joke? And then we're going to write some jokes in this style. And so we did that. And at the end of eight weeks, I did. I had five minutes worth of, you know, joke material cobbled together. And um, she had a connection at the comedy store. And basically it was like, you get five minutes as long as you bring some people in the audience who buy two drinks each. So (laughs) that's that's really the deal you're making. I will bring people to buy drinks. And uh, I gave flyers to everyone I could think of so that I wouldn't be able to chicken out. You know, I had just told too many people. And Uh um, I remember the morning of the performance and I like did my, I practiced my set over and over. And on the morning of the performance, I was so nervous. I was teaching at that time. I couldn't go to school. I had, forgive me for saying this, but I had terrible diarrhea. I just couldn't like, I, I had such a nervous stomach and I stayed home and drank Gatorade and I, as the closer we got to the performance, the more I thought, I don't know if I can do this, but I'd send out those flyers. It worked exactly the way it should, which was, I was like, I can't call 20 you, different you people. Totally. I am committed. committed. And then I did it. And because I had brought so many people, I went last because the whole idea was, you know, as, as you check in, they basically say, who are you here to support or to see? And whoever has a lot of people, they just make them wait because then maybe they'll buy more drinks. And so I I inadvertently also did that to myself where I just had to watch comic after comic go and do their five minutes and, you know, succeed or fail. But it was just, it was so nerve wracking. And then finally it was my turn. And um, my friends were all very supportive and they laughed. And I'm sure at that point they were really well liquored up too. <laughs> and at the end of it, I survived. I got through the five minutes and... I hadn't forgotten my jokes and some some of the jokes had worked very well and a couple had kind of fizzled, but I'd lived through it and uh, it was exhilarating. Yeah. I did stand up three more times before I got tired of having diarrhea because <laughs> I never got over my nerves. You and never did? I never did. I'm sure it gave you a feel for how different people respond to comedy. But yes, well, we've we've walked down my memory lane today, Mom. We um, we haven't gotten oh, into yours. That's great, though. I because I'm hearing things that, of course, at that time I didn't hear. Well, that's you... true. Well, Mom, um, one thing I wanted to to bring up just because yesterday we saw the Elvis movie. Right, I remember you texted me that. So, what did you think? Well, it's very engaging. And at the same time, it was just kind of gut-wrenching because Elvis's story ends so sadly. Well, Leslie, my introduction to Elvis Presley was in 
I want to say 1956. And you have to remember where I was living at that time. I was living in rural Kentucky. We had a black and white TV. And my introduction to Elvis took place when he was introduced by Ed Sullivan on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I remember watching him and all of his, I call them gyrations. Sure. Oh, I think they, I think other people called them gyrations. (laughs) Yes. And thinking, wow. I mean, it was electrifying even on a, what is now considered a small screen TV. Oh, right. Like as small as our computer screens that we're on our laptops. Yes. Yes. And thinking, wow. Did your mom or your dad, does anyone else watch with you? What did they think about it? I have no idea. I have no recollection of that experience except watching this performer and just, I was mesmerized. Well, that is very much what they show in the movie that, you know, Elvis, regardless of what older generations thought, Elvis completely captivated his teen audience, especially teen girls. And I was probably uh, one of those persons that was just ripe, you know, to have that kind of experience. And then I certainly remembered his name and uh, watching him as he did his thing on the Ed Sullivan (laughs) show. And I think probably that was the Ed Sullivan show was definitely a family. You're not going to see anything that's going to cause you to put a blindfold on your children. Uh, Well, they get into that in the movie, the question of how, quote, family friendly could they make Elvis and, you know, his his promoter, Colonel Tom Parker, and that's the part played by yeah. Tom Hanks, you know, is oh, okay, is very much sort of got an eye on how can we just make the most money and upset the fewest people. And, you know, Elvis, meanwhile, wants to be Elvis and kind of do his own thing. So, yeah, I think you would also find it interesting because Tom Hanks um, narrates the movie. It's from Colonel Tom Parker's point of view. And he starts out talking as a very old man about like, you know, some people call me the villain of this piece. And he is the villain of the piece, but he's also not. It's I think the movie makes the point that fame and the culture of fame and sort of that high someone can get from being adored by a crowd is just intrinsically destructive. And that once someone's got that, they spend the rest of their life chasing that high and that love. Yeah, and then wanting to repeat that sensation. It's yes. it's like the high that athletes get when they achieve number one. Yes, yes. You have that peak experience and everyone is screaming your name and everyone admires you. Right. And then that may be impossible to recapture. Well, interesting to see. I will, I, it may already be here. I bet it is. It's a big enough movie that I bet it is playing, you know, in in Portsmouth. Thanks for listening to Nancy's Next Chapter. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at nancywakepodcast at gmail.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-W-A-K-E podcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Podigy for help with all of our audio editing. Our theme music is Beautiful Dreamer by Stephen Foster, 
played by Nancy Wake.